0: Welcome to I Am, I Have. I'm Lucy Donoghue and this podcast is brought to you by Happerful Magazine and Counseling Directory. Now we all have mental health and some of us will experience or live with mental illness, but that doesn't define who we are. Through I Am, I Have, we'll meet with some wonderful people who have spoken out about mental health and illness and find out more about who they are and the passions that shape their lives as well as their reflections on their own mental health. We hope you'll join us and share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag I am, I have. I'm delighted to welcome Natasha Devon to I am, I have today. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. And
0: I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself today because I am, I have is all about who we
1: really are. So in your own words. Wow, that's a big ask. Okay. But so in my job is I'm an activist. I've I've started saying activist rather than campaigner because I feel like increasingly people use the term campaigner to describe those who raise awareness, which is absolutely needed, but I want to change things structurally, practically. So I actually devise campaigns which change laws and media things and, and stuff like that. So yeah, I've started saying I'm an activist. Also, it just sounds a little bit more sexy and rock and roll. <laughs> and I'm also an author, but the the majority of my work I do in schools with teenagers, which is the best job In the universe.
0: And you can't see it, but Natasha has a huge smile on her face (laughs) after saying that. And you've been at a school this morning, is that right? Yes. And you're talking to some school children again this afternoon?
1: Not this afternoon. I'll be back in schools tomorrow. So predominantly, I talk to 13 to 18 year olds. And there's three things that I talk about. The first is social media and how to survive the digital world with your self esteem intact. And I think it's really important not to demonize social media. You know, they've grown up with it. It's part of their lives. It's part of how they identify. So it's all about how you use it as opposed to taking a zero tolerance policy on it. The other one is about anxiety and stress management, particularly focusing on self-harm, because I I think at its root, self-harm is just a very bad coping strategy. And if we can frame it like that, it becomes something that is, first of all, understandable, but second of all, surmountable and then the other class that i do is is more of a sixth form type class and, and it takes a really philosophical approach to mental health so it's about identity and social ideas and just getting them to think about things like gender and sexuality and how that plays into mental health and the whole idea around the talk is that it's meant to provoke debate and that's always my favorite one to do that sounds amazing
0: <laughs> and before we start on your iams i would like to ask you if you don't mind talk a bit about where's your head at because mm. you have been championing and pushing this forward and really pushing the agenda on Where's Your Head At. So I'd, I'd like you to, to tell our listeners, if they don't already know, they should know. Mm-hmm. So if you don't
1: mind just explaining that to us. Where's Your Head At is a campaign to change the law so that there would be an obligation on employers to make provision for mental health first aid in the same way as they do physical first aid. So in a nutshell, we all know that at work there has to be people on site who know the protocol if we, say, you know, cut our finger or faint or need an ambulance. It is possible to train as a mental health first aider. And what you're taught on the course is, say you have a colleague who has a panic attack or they're exhibiting symptoms of depression or or even if, if they're suicidal, it teaches you what to say, what not to say, and then what to signpost to, What it's appropriate to recommend. And my sense is that a lot of us out there, we have colleagues who we suspect are struggling. And if they were struggling with their physical health, we'd know the protocol. We'd check in with them. We'd buy them grapes. I don't know why grapes are the fruit of illness, but <laughs> they are. They are. Um, yeah. But when it comes to mental health, because it's an unknown, people have this fear of making it worse. So they take a step back and that person ends up isolated, which is, of course, the worst possible thing. So I I, I guess it's about two things. It's first of all, giving people the confidence to know how to support that person. But second of all, it's about parity because this government have been promising us parity of esteem. So mental and physical health being given the same amount of funding and importance and awareness since 2011. Wow. Yeah. Eight years. And... This is a really simple way that they can show that they mean it. It's so important. We spend so much of our life
0: at work. Mm. And one of the things we were talking about the other day is, is quite often we spend more time at work than we do with the people we have chosen to spend our lives with. So true. Or our very best friends. Yeah. So it is a place at which if you are experiencing challenges, that is going to become evident. And at Happiful, the majority of us have had mental health first aid training. Mm. and it is wonderful training. It really helps, I think, to eradicate the fear of how to approach somebody if you suspect they are struggling. Mm. And, you know, we completely endorse what you're doing, Natasha, and just want to say thank you for doing it. So (laughs) I'm going to move on to your Iams now. I slightly hijacked your Iams with that, (laughs) but I think it's it's important that we we give it as much airtime as possible. So for your Iams, your first one is it's one that I think a lot of our listeners will identify mm. with actually, which is I am
1: a work in progress. Yes, in so many different ways. Um, you know, something that I often say to the young people I work with is particularly in media reporting, mental ill health is very much presented as here's this person that used to be really ill and now, da da, they're better. <laughs> and you know, the statistics show that for about 50% of people who have an episode of depression or anxiety, they will recover and never relapse. But for the other half of us, it's more a lifelong thing. And, and that also goes for people who have a, you know, a bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or a personality disorder. You know, these are, are more lifelong conditions which need to be managed. And therefore, recovery is an ongoing process. But I'm also a work in progress in so many other ways as well. And I think particularly the example that I gave you is is with feminism. Because I look back on some of the stuff that I used to write about feminism and I just wish I could delete it from the internet, but you can't. <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so annoying. But I, I used to be, I realised the, the kind of epitome of a, um a kind of privileged woman who doesn't understand that other women don't have the same life or opportunity as her and i couldn't either understand that sexism and misogyny is is on a spectrum so i couldn't get my head around why people were Campaigning about things like page three and lads mags and stuff because I thought, well, you know, in, in other countries women can't drive, they're not entitled to an education, you know, and I didn't understand that really it's all a symptom of the of exactly the same attitude. But then, uh, you know, I gradually, through the the process of talking to lots of academics and and other women who knew a lot more than me, got I believe the term is woke. So now I've completely done a 180 on that and I'm actually really enjoying learning more about the history of the movement as well. I
0: think that would go for a lot of us, Mm. that continuing to learn. I certainly think that what I deemed to be feminism five years ago is very different to now and Mm. still every single day I learn Mm. and some of the other guests we've had on the podcast have talked about following people on social media who are outside your kind of lived experience or who are very different to you and actually learning through other people's conversation and I think being a work in progress is something we should probably all aspire to be in terms of continuing to learn. How do you continue to actively be a work in progress? What What do you do for yourself?
1: I think it's really important to, first of all, acknowledge that you are inevitably in a silo of some description. It is actually terrifying when you look into the algorithms which select what we're exposed to online. It's not just things like advertising. It's, it's actually um, the content that is fed into our feed is hand-selected based on our pre-existing interests because people love to have their beliefs confirmed. So I was talking just yesterday to some sixth-form boys who had some really definite ideas about what feminists were and they were exclusively wrong so like, they, they were like oh you know feminists they they hate men they think that women are superior to men they think that men are trash they want to keep us in cages just for reproduction I was like where is this coming from wow. and then they were saying well you know uh, uh, there's all these videos that I've seen online of women who a guy just said hi to them in the street and then that you know they lost it with them they started screaming at them and I said well you do realize though that that video was hand selected for you to confirm your biases about what feminists are like and you're just seeing one tiny corner of you know a vast movement and that's true of everything that that we experience and are exposed to so I think it's really important to challenge yourself to listen to people who have views and experiences that are radically different from your own and to respect that as well because we've become quite binary and shouty haven't we <laughs> in 2019 I, yeah I think so <laughs> yeah so try and explore that kind of nuanced middle ground I would say
0: and also moving from one opinion to another you can appreciate perhaps how that first opinion is formed Mm. as well and in the kind of role that you have you know talking to young people you can explore perhaps that journey to get to a different appreciation of a of a specific topic do you find working with young people they give back as much as you are you are giving or teaching them
1: the great thing about The age group that I work with is that they are old enough to understand how the world works, but they're young enough to be quite plastic in their views on things. But you can't predict it. So, you know, if I go and work with a group of adults, I'll know roughly what kinds of questions I'm going to get and I can prepare for that group of teenagers you have no idea it's just so left field some of the questions that they ask because they they will go right back and and question some of the things that we take for granted. And being a work in progress in 2019
0: are there things personally that you want to work on for yourself?
1: Oh yeah tons of things one of the things that I would really like to reclaim in my life so I when I was at school I used to play piano And I've always loved music. I come from a very musical family. My mum plays guitar and, you know, I sing and for a while for for a couple of years in my early 20s I tried to be a musician but it turns out that I'm not very good at writing <laughs> my own material so I then moved on I did that classic thing of you know if you if you can't do something what do you do you become a critic of that thing so I, I started writing music reviews for newspapers and that was how I kind of got into writing and I just found that I could not be mean about anyone because <laughs> music's so subjective, isn't it? So I, I, I didn't feel comfortable calling any band or artist rubbish. So, so I'd always say, you know, well, if you like, I don't know, Radiohead, you'll probably like this. Or I do the classic thing of, you know, if Millie Jackson and Aretha Franklin had a baby, you'd get this artist. You know, and so I really kind of miss that aspect of my life because as mental health has taken over more and more, it, it's what I talk about, it's what I write about, and I'm no longer sort of in that that creative space so much so my big thing that I want to do more of over the coming years is to uh, get a keyboard and start playing again but also to see more bands and just you know carve out that that aspect of my life again take that creative time for yourself marvelous so your second I am is Mm. I am angry yes tell us I'm really angry about loads of things. I'm angry at the moment about the the political landscape, the state that we find our country in, the fact that so many lies have been told with no apparent consequences and um, I'm angry that society is becoming increasingly divided into the haves and the have-nots and so many of the things that we treasure as a culture a kind of under threat and you know like the NHS like funding for for health and education and and I'm angry about the lack of opportunity and and all of that stuff but I'm also quite angry personally (laughs) and I'm only just learning to deal with it and there's been some kind of hurts in my past that I I think I internalize them and part of it certainly is because When you're a girl, you are told that anger is not an acceptable emotion. It's it's interesting, actually, that, that boys are socialized to believe that anger is the only acceptable emotion and girls that you can feel anything as long as you're not angry, that it's somehow unfeminine and unladylike. So I squashed my anger for many, many years. And, uh, you know, what I now understand about feelings is that they're energy. So you can't destroy them. You can turn them into something else. But they if you ignore them, they won't go away. So this is built up and up and up over time. And I'm only just learning to live alongside my anger and be comfortable with it and harness it in a way that's useful. And
0: how do you express your anger?
1: How have you started to work with your anger? I've become much better at confrontation. I used to avoid them, which makes you actually quite a sulky person, I find, because, you know, someone always knows if you're annoyed. <laughs> and so if you try and hide it, you know, it comes across in this this passive aggressive way. So I've, I've got much better at saying when you did this, it made me feel like this. <laughs> And now, if you would like to, you can respond or apologize Um, and do that, that kind of stuff in my kind of personal relationships. But I've also, I think, learned to harness the anger professionally into that's why I said right at the beginning, you know, I want to change things. And I think my anger is part of the momentum that that keeps me keeps me going at it like you know I'm like a I was gonna say I'm like a Rottweiler but it doesn't paint me in the best light but you know we we were saying just before we came on air you know I wrote a complaint letter to the Daily Star over one of their front page headlines which called nine-year-olds who are doing meditation at school snowflakes and I wrote to them originally on the the 14th of December and didn't receive a reply so I chased it just before Christmas and then that didn't receive a reply. So I hand wrote on my best (laughs) notepaper, a letter to the editor enclosing printouts of the email in the new year. And I still haven't received a reply. And I'm like, I'm not going to be ignored. You know, before I would have just swallowed that down and got really angry about it in my own time. But now I'm like, no, no, I'm just going to keep going with this (laughs) until I get a reaction from you.
0: It deserves to be heard, and mm. I think I think the problem with anger sometimes is when we suppress it, the feeling of needing to be heard or something to be addressed is still there. And as you were saying, that plays out in different ways. You know, you can feel you can, it can come out as passive aggression or it it festers, and Mm. then the next time around when something like this happens, you react to that situation plus the situation that you've brought along with you as well. Yeah. And The Daily Star, I think think that's a really good example of this kind of... It's not even subliminal because it's so obvious, Mm. but this dumbing down or laughing at people trying to acknowledge the importance of children being mindful and looking after their emotions. Mm. And to put that on the front page of a newspaper, I think is dangerous and unwarranted. And to not respond to that, even to have a conversation, I think is really, I mean, at best unfortunate. But I'm I'm glad you're doing that. And as I I, I think we said before, Happerful fully supports supports that. In terms of anger moving forward, are there things that you are angry about this year that you you feel you would like to put
1: more time behind professionally? Mm. I'm angry that because of Brexit... Everything else has been put on the back burner. So with Where's Your Head At? It was scheduled to be debated at Parliament last year. It's been put back at the time of recording to tomorrow. But who knows? Uh, you, You know, it might get pushed back again. And that is true insofar as education as well. You know, education is messy at the moment because we've got we've got a curriculum that was at its heart. It was designed about 100 years ago and hasn't really changed. And it's no longer fit for purpose because, you know, for example, just give you one example. The reason that children learn at desks in rows was originally to prepare them for factory work. But less of us go on to work in factories now. So it's not and and we know that that's not the best way to engage them and, and to help them learn. We know a lot more about how brains work and develop than we did 100 years ago. And radical change is needed. And there have been successive secretaries of state, I think, who have acknowledged that. But rather than start it again from scratch, which is obviously this monumental task, what they've done is they've just stuck on their little reforms and created this really messy thing (laughs) that is putting huge amounts of pressures, not just on children, but on the teaching profession and on parents as well. I think we're all feeling the effects of this not fit for purpose education system. And I'm I'm angry about that. So this is my kind of long-term project, I think, is to to try and obviously not single-handedly <laughs> redesign the education system from scratch.
0: I know that there are a lot of people who support you with that. And recently in the news there's been talk about mental health and the provisions in schools, Mm. and what we're hoping to reach by 2020. And I know that you have some concerns around that as well. And I wondered if you wanted to talk a bit more about, about that as well. Well,
1: in a lot of instances, I think there are aspects of school that are making children sick in the first place. The relentless testing, the narrowing of the curriculum, you know, there are Subjects which we know have a therapeutic value, things like physical education, art, music, that have been squeezed out of the curriculum uh, to make way for. I'm doing bunny rabbit ears, core academic (laughs) subjects. And that means not only that children are doing a lot less physical activity, a lot less creative things, which are are endorphin producers, they restore your chemical balance. But it also means that if that's where your talents lie, your talents aren't being recognised within the school walls, which has an impact on self-esteem, which therefore has an impact on mental health. So uh, my senses, and the best way I've heard it described is that it's like the government keeps slapping on factor 50, but they're not turning down the heat and they need to look at what are the the core reasons why we have so many children who are struggling with their mental health. And we also, I think, need to acknowledge that mental health permeates everything we do from, you know, it's both affected by and affects what you eat for breakfast in the morning, right to how much sleep you get at night. Yeah. So therefore, again, going back to redesigning the curriculum, you need to design a curriculum with mental health at its heart. A consideration of mental health in absolutely everything that the pupils do. What's happening at the moment is you're getting, you know, one assembly or a PSHE day. Yeah. The PSHE drop down day is evil. It's where you have one day in the whole academic year where you just everything so you've got like budgeting sex lgbtq mental health absolutely everything that's not core academics just studied in one day and if you're sick you know no pastoral stuff for you but it's because of you know schools know it's not the best thing but it's because of timetable restrictions and budgeting restrictions that's how they have to do it so it's kind of tacked on and for that reason i think a lot of young people don't think mental health is relevant to them because they've had one awareness raising assembly where where someone has come in and shared their story and they've gone, that's an interesting story, but that will never happen to me.
0: Yeah. And as they grow up, they'll realise how relevant it is as well. But hopefully the generation that's coming through now, Mm. from everything that's being done, everything that you're doing and, and all the other people who are working so hard in mental health, I have real hope that they will have a different attitude towards mental health.
1: Yeah. I, I also think it's about normalising the conversation. I'm friends with uh, Johnny Benjamin, who I know was on your cover a, a couple of months ago. He is just the, the loveliest bloke in the world. <laughs> but he makes a really good point where he says there are so many missed opportunities on the syllabus to just have a quick discussion. Yeah. So, so the example he gives is he said he was always taught that Romeo and Juliet was a love story. But when you examine it, it's actually, it's a story about a young man who probably has bipolar and two young people who end their life. You know, that's that's a story about mental health. Wow. And there's a real missed opportunity there to have that discussion and, and thereby contextualise the assemblies that you have, you know. I had never thought about it in that way. Yeah.
0: That's so... And if you think about quite a lot of the texts you're taught in English at school, mm. my mind is going through them all now. There are opportunities within practically all of those to talk about
1: the mental health of the protagonists and mm. the characters around them. Well, particularly Shakespeare. I've you know going back and rereading Shakespeare's plays, you realise that he had a particular interest in this. So even in Julius Caesar, there's a, a moment where one of the characters Portia says to her husband look I've I've inflicted upon myself a voluntary wound because I'm so worried about you which completely puts to bed this idea that self-harm is a new phenomenon because Shakespeare was writing about it in the the 15th century
0: absolutely oh I love that oh I'll have to think about that more (laughs) I'm going to move on to your third I am Which is one that I'm going to love talking about, I know. You tell us that you're a dog person and that dogs are magic for mental well-being.
1: I really think they are, you know. I I am desperate for a dog. This kind of goes back to the work in progress thing. I am at the moment trying to overhaul my lifestyle so that having a dog would be a realistic possibility for me. (laughs) Because at the moment it just wouldn't be fair. I do so much travelling and things. But we have a family dog. My parents have a dog called May, who is a Briard. So she's a French sheep dog. She just looks like a big black bear. And what I find extraordinary about her is we have a running joke in our family that I I come home to visit the dog. And there is definitely more than a grain of truth in it. It's sort of part of my self-care. I go, I think I might need a bit of May time. And she's brilliant at tuning in to your mood. Like whoever you are, she knows exactly what you're good for, if that makes sense. So for example uh, with my my nan who's you know quite elderly quite quite frail she'll just sit with her you know when i walk through the door it's play i want to play <laughs> you know but if i've been feeling a bit under the weather she knows that i need a cuddle there's been times when i've been uh, really poorly and I've gone back home and she's just followed me around. She's just refused to leave me. And there's nothing that you can see visibly that would indicate that I was sick, but she just knows. And so she's like, you know, she's not my favourite out of all of my siblings. <laughs> but it's <laughs> close. You know, she's up there. yeah.
0: It it is quite amazing how dogs are able to tune in to mood and i don't know enough about this but i have seen it in action so many times mm. and you you told me that you have a friend who looks after rescue puppies that's right yeah as well and you think that you might be giving off this kind of
1: yeah aura i mean it could be this could be confirmation bias but and my partner's noticed it as well that his theory is that i was a dog in a previous life so we'll go to the park and if you walk, if I walk past a dog, they give me a sort of nod, like a hello, <laughs> nod. And my friend who looks after rescue puppies, she she quite often says you're the first person that they've allowed to touch them or that they've approached. So I, you know, I think it's just that they're a bit psychic and they they know that I will be nice to them. But it is extraordinary. Like some of the schools that I go into, they have therapy dogs, and. The reason that they have them is they say that they have children who maybe have problems at home or there's something going on with them, but they don't quite know what. And they will talk to the dog in earshot of adults in a way that they never would if the adult directly asked them a question.
0: Yeah. It's, it's children and older people. The Mayhew Animal Home have something called theropause mm. and they go into older people's homes where they're not able to have animals of their own and they take animals and the The effect that it has, that, that kind of tactile being able to stroke and touch and feel that kind of relationship because I think what you were just talking about, animals are really good at picking up on the kind of can't say anything more than the spirit of somebody so they will tell if you are someone that that they can approach and be safe with yeah and it's something that I find so interesting when it comes to mental health specifically is is that kind of being with another being Mm. and it being completely unconditional yeah and non-verbal it's it's quite amazing i hope you get a dog i
1: hope i get a dog too can we start a campaign (laughs) if you know if you want to sponsor me a pound a year if we can get twenty-five thousand people to do that then i will never have to work again and i can just hang out with the dog all day hashtag get natasha a dog now (laughs) (laughs) let's start
0: it it'll be trending thank you for that i could talk about dogs all day but i suppose we should probably move on yeah So we've had your three I am's. We're going to move on to your I have. And Natasha, I love this. You tell me you have issues. Yeah. Tell me about your issues.
1: We all have issues. We do. And I think the world is divided into people who acknowledge that and people who don't. And this is what's interesting to me is that I think it was Stephen Fry who articulated it best at the Mind Awards a couple of years ago. He said, if aliens were observing the planet, they would say that the people who have acknowledged mental health issues are the sanest ones <laughs> because what the recovery process forces you to do is to try and understand your brain a little bit better, be kind of aware of yourself and, and your behaviour and your effect on others and to have a relationship with your brain. And in fact, everyone should do that. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I've started to to be a bit more open in saying I have issues because there was such a huge taboo around it. I think for so long, people, particularly in education, there was a fear of letting people who might potentially still have issues with their mental health interact with children. And, you know, you should never, ever be using pupils as therapy. But having said that, I think what a lot of children need to see is that you can live with mental health issues that it, you know you live alongside them and it's part of who you are but it doesn't define who you are so i'm trying to be a kind of friendly face of mental illness <laughs> i don't know if that's the right way of phrasing it but yeah trying trying to destigmatize the idea that you you going right back to the beginning that you're always a, a work in progress
0: i think you and people like Johnny as well Johnny Benjamin and many others are showing that on a daily basis that we live with or experience mental health and mental illnesses yeah. but that doesn't stop us being the person
1: we are yeah and uh, you know i've had so many people advise me as well that it's really interesting because i <laughs> i think a lot of people who build up a, an online persona, there is a huge gap between the way that they're perceived by their following and the way that they are in real life. Yeah. So I meet a lot of people and they go, oh, you're, you're really nice. And and I go, well, you're not expecting me to be. And apparently I come across as really scary, sort of quite scary and forthright online. And then people meet me in, in real real life and they see that I'm actually, I'm a lot softer than, than maybe they expected. And I am quite a sensitive person. And I've had so many people advise me. They say, you know, you've got to stop letting people take advantage of you. You know, I had one of my friends say to me, you get betrayed a lot. You have to be a lot more careful who you trust or you have to stop letting things get to you. You have to develop a thicker skin. But if I did that, it would by definition, I think, make me less empathetic as well. It would make me less kind. Mm -hmm. So actually, I think one of my my issues is that I'm really sensitive and I take things to heart. But it's also an advantage. So I'm kind of, I kind of nurture that in myself. And I think, well, the minute that I become really bitter, <laughs> I've lost, I've allowed the world to to change that fundamental aspect of who I am, you know,
0: how does it feel for you when people say, I have this perception of you? But you're not like that.
1: Well, I don't, I don't mind, actually, because Catlin Moran actually said feminism is like a patchwork quilt and we all have our square. And that's exactly how I feel about mental health campaigning and awareness raising. There are so many people all doing incredible work, like you say, like Claire Easton, for example, yeah. you know, awareness raising around anxiety and Chidira eguru you know, another one of your cover stars, Um, you know, and they've they all got their thing, you know, they've all claimed their corner of the mental health landscape and i think my particular corner is that i stand up for for people and you know i don't take any nonsense and you know it, it and i do tell off mps and you know i do go on tv We're and i, I rant about things yes yeah. <laughs> and so if people perceive me as you don't mess with her that's a good thing because that's the role that i'm playing within the the mental health landscape
0: it interests me going back to the title of the podcast mm. as well in that earlier on we were talking about in 2019 people are quite binary and definitive and actually you are so many things we are all so many things yeah but i wonder whether part of that is also about boundaries and protecting ourselves because you know you are a public figure but also there has to be part of you that you keep away from that as
1: well do you is that a conscious mm. thing for you or it's difficult when you work in the kind of environment I do because by definition people who are attracted into mental health awareness and education generally tend to be people that I would choose as friends anyway so I meet a lot of people professionally who I also consider friends and that immediately blurs the lines And they always say you should never mix business and friendship. But that's for a lot of people, for an awful lot of reasons, just isn't tenable, (laughs) you know, in, in the modern world. So that does make it difficult. I would say meeting my partner, Marcus, has changed it for me because there is a real element of me that is really daft. Like I have a very daft sense of humor. I'm really silly and giggly, which is not a side of myself that I let out often. But when I'm with him, I'm like it all the time. So, and, and I do corner that aspect of myself. And you won't see me being like it. Like occasionally, I'll say, say something on Twitter, you know, that's designed to be funny. But you, you won't ever see me make a video where I'm, you know, doing the voices from Monty Python.
0: Because
1: that's for you. And that's, that's for, for me. You yeah. Marcus.
0: And you've written a book. Can you tell us about the book that you bought out last year?
1: Yes, it's called A Beginner's Guide to Being Mental. And it's an A to Z. It's a combination of three things, my own experience of mental illness. So in addition to having panic disorder, I also had bulimia for about seven years in my late teens and early 20s. So it's my experience of having and those illnesses and also recovering from those illnesses combined with expertise from scientists and that was something that I was really keen to get in there, that it had a really robust evidence base. I wanted it to be like Sarah Pascoe's animal, you know, so the, the science relatably told. And then the third part of it is tips, practical tips for surviving life. So it's kind of part encyclopedia, part self-help book, part autobiography, <laughs> smooshed together. But it actually began its life because I was an English student. I did English at university. And one of the things that you're told when you study English is that English has more words than any other dialect. You probably were sort of peripherally aware of this, that, you know, English teachers always say there's never any excuse to be lazy with your vocabulary. But, and whilst that's true, if you look at how the words are apportioned in English, we have the smallest emotional vocabulary of any developed nation on earth because we're English, right? And so, it's, or we're, English was first spoken by English people, and we're just very vague. You know, when you look at other languages, they're much more specific in their emotional words. So, you know, like German has schadenfreude, which is to take joy in someone else's misfortune. That's a very specific word. Or like in Russian, there's this word nyenolublu, which means I love you, but I hate you in this moment. Yeah I like that. Is yeah, that again? So We just don't have words like that. And so what that means is whilst this incredible mental health global conversation has been started, we're talking at cross purposes because nobody is using the words in the same way. So the idea behind the book was actually to examine language and how we can listen to each other better. And then over time, it developed into this A to Z. But that's the kind of philosophy that that runs through it.
0: And was it cathartic for you as well, writing that book and putting all those thoughts together in those three separate kind of ways of communicating about the, the A to Z.
1: Yeah, it, it was great to be able to crystallise it all into one kind of handy guide. It's, it's not just about mental health it's about things that are related to mental health so for example c is capitalism and it's looking at how you know we're indoctrinated into a belief system that says you're not good enough and you need stuff to fix it and you know the impact that has on us and q is for queer so it's looking at the the intersection between sexuality and and mental health so it's great to be able to tie up all of my thoughts because you know some of them were quite nebulous before i wrote the book and now it's helped me to understand what i think about things a little bit more
0: that's fantastic. And it's from anxiety to zero fucks given. Indeed. Which yeah. I absolutely love. <laughs> and on that, I'm going to ask you the final question, which is, what would you say to Natasha, perhaps a teenage Natasha, about
1: life and, and having issues? I think the, the best piece of advice that I could have given myself was that to stop observing myself living Because like a lot of teenagers, I tried to become the person that I wanted to be by faking it until I made it. And what I didn't realize was that all the raw ingredients were there and I just needed to give myself a little bit of time and space to develop. And when you're being yourself, you don't notice yourself being yourself. (laughs) You know, you you just are. It's a really organic thing. And I didn't realise that at the time. And I also didn't know that there would never be a magic age where I suddenly woke up and knew what I was doing. Oh God, that is the best piece of advice. I know. Like no one is walking around knowing about life. We're all just You don't suddenly it.
0: get this kind of, you wake up and there's this package of knowledge that you <laughs> yeah. consume and you, you say, oh, I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. I always thought I was going to wake up at 40 and everything would be sorted. Yeah. And it wasn't. And that was a shock. And I was talking to my mum about it and she's in her 70s and she said she still doesn't feel that way. Yeah. So I think that is one of the best pieces of advice. Don't put yourself a time limit for when you'll know it all because you'll never know it all. Yeah. And you'll never And you'll never be fully sorted. And I think the more you consider yourself as a work in progress, going back to
1: your very first I am, the happier you'll be. I agree it gives you confidence as well that knowledge that you know that scary person that you have a job interview with also doesn't know what they're doing no no (laughs) you know and it goes back to that thing that everyone sits on the toilet but (laughs) but it's also everybody is just winging it they're just making it up as they go along
0: Yeah. yeah Absolutely. Well, that's a really good place to finish on. <laughs> we're all making it up, but we're having a lovely time doing it as well. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to I Am, I Have, brought to you by Counselling Directory and Happiful magazine. Please rate, review and share if you like what you hear. If you'd like to read more about mental health and well-being, head over to Happiful.com and sign up to receive a free e-edition of the magazine every month. If you're looking for local counselling support, you can find over 15,000 counsellors at your fingertips at counsellingdirectory.org.uk. If you need to speak to someone immediately, the Samaritans are available 24 hours a day on 116 123 and you can also email joe at samaritans.org. Help is available. For more information on the support available for mental health, you can also visit mind.org.uk. This podcast has been produced by Happiful. We hope you'll join us again soon.